You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The U.S. House Majority Leader steps down after losing his seat to a Tea Party candidate. China pledges more spending and lower taxes. And Alibaba challenges Amazon with a new boutique website. We'll set this, the tone this morning with a few interesting quotes. And while I may have had a, suffered a personal setback last night, I couldn't be more optimistic about the future of this country. That is Eric Cantor trying to be gracious in defeat. He lost to little-known Tea Party candidate David Bratt. And some reaction here from Goldman Sachs. Can you go to Washington and try and be a compromiser and try and get things done? That's Gary Cohn, the number two at Goldman Sachs, the company not very happen. And a very big question, it raises the specter of this loss does, of Republicans perhaps becoming more wary of compromise in the Congress if it could lead to defeat in the primaries. So that brings up a whole host of questions. We'll get to some of them on the program this morning. In our featured segments today, uh, Frederick Ockvist, founder of China RAI, will be with us. We'll be talking a little bit about Alibaba and Tencent. Michael Kurtz from from Nomura will be along to talk about markets and strategy, as will Puru Sagzena of Puru Sagzena Wealth Management. Markets are a little bit lower this morning. The Nikkei is down 118 at 14,950, a weaker feed-in from Wall Street. The number is there in a minute. In Australia, the ASX 200 down a couple of points in Seoul. The Kospi down about one point, so not too much action there. And very little movement in the currency markets this morning. The dollar is trading steady against the yen. 102.01 is the number. The euro is worth 1.3536 U.S. dollars. The pound is 13 Hong Kong dollars and one cent. And the Australian dollar, 93.8 U.S. cents. U.S. Representative Eric Cantor of Virginia has lost his seat and will resign as majority leader, effective July 31st. The defeat of Mr. Cantor was a big surprise. He'd had a lead of about 12 to 20 points in the polls before the election, before the primary. He refused to speculate on what led to defeat, and he tried to stay above the fray. Growing up uh, in the Jewish faith, um, you know, I grew up, went to Hebrew school, read a lot in the Old Testament. And you learn a lot about individual setbacks. But you also read and you learn that each setback is an opportunity and that there's always optimism for the future. And while I may have had a, suffered a personal setback last night, I couldn't be more optimistic about the future of this country. And he endorsed the number three in the House, Kevin McCarthy, for the post of majority leader. If my dear friend and colleague Kevin McCarthy does decide to run, I think he'd make an outstanding majority leader, and um, I will be backing him with my full support. Back to Gary Cohn, the number two at Goldman Sachs. He was surprised and disappointed. Eric has been a great leader. He's been a great public servant, and I think we've all enjoyed having Eric in the Congress. I think it 
more in essence makes a statement to some degree about what's going on in Washington and can you go to Washington and try and be a compromiser and try and get things done and be a centrist and get reelected and I think for financial markets and for Main Street and Wall Street that's an issue that we're dealing with today more than we were dealing with yesterday at this time. On Wall Street, stocks fell the most in three weeks. The Dow Jones Industrial Average had been up the previous five days. Some traders cited the Cantor story. Some cited the World Bank prediction of slower growth uh, in the global economy this year. And some just said it was likely to be profit-taking. The S&P 500 dropped 0.4% to 1943. The Dow was down 102 points at 16,843. And the yield on the 10-year note in the bond market, little changed at 2.64%. The Cantor loss did fuel concern about further gridlock in Washington. Mr. Cantor was an ally for Wall Street on various issues, ranging from the 2008 TARP plan to defending the Export-Import Bank. And just before we get to our guest this morning, uh, speaking of growth in the uh, overall U.S. economy, the Treasury Secretary, Jack Liu, was upbeat. After a slow first quarter, partly because of a harsh winter, we, along with most forecasters, expect the underlying strength from the end of last year to continue and lead to a much stronger second quarter and second half of the year. Nevertheless, we cannot escape the fact that millions of Americans continue to struggle, and their pain reminds us that our work is not yet finished. Unemployment is still too high, and economic growth is still too low. In other news, China has announced new steps aimed at bolstering slowing economic growth. China will cut taxes, will spend more on developing the Yangtze River region, and will also expand financing for exporters. China will boost public investment in railway, highways, waterways, and aviation network construction in the Yangtze River Basin. Well, let's say good morning to our first guest this morning, Puru Sagzena of Puru Sagzena Wealth Management. Peru, good morning, and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Brian. Pleasure to be here. What's your overall feel about the investing climate at the moment? Well, if you look at the yield curve, it is still very steep in most uh, of the developed nations. Uh, You look at the Fed funds rate in the U.S. is close to zero. Uh, The 10-year is at 2.6%. The 30-year yield is at 3.5%. And under these uh, circumstances, Brian, uh, asset prices tend to do well. If the yield curve is steep and the cost of borrowing is low at the short end, Equity prices tend to do well. Uh, the bull markets usually end when you have the flattening and the eventual inversion of the yield curve historically over the last 70 or 80 years. This has been the case. Protracted bear markets have only occurred after the inversion of the yield curve, and we're not there yet, and I don't think we're going to get there for the next four or five years. We did flatten a little bit late, uh, well, early this year. Um, we do see you know, bond yields uh, on, let's say, the 10-year uh, has fallen quite uh, significantly, but yields have just come down really all over the globe. Uh, does that worry you that the people in the bond market uh, are, are perhaps thinking that growth is slowing down more dramatically than what well, people in the stock market think? You may get periodic corrections in the stock market, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a multi-month or maybe a couple of year long bear market like we saw uh, you know, at the start of 2000 and also in 2008. So yes, you're going to get pullbacks. You're going to have zigs and zags in every market. Nothing goes up or down in the straight line. But as long as the Fed funds rate is at zero and the monetary policy is uh, accommodative and central banks
banks are easing as they are today, you've got to be long stocks. You can't be in cash. So if you don't watch bond yields dropping, let's say in the 10-year as an early indicator, what do you look at? Well, you look at a variety of things. You know, we look at technicals very heavily at our firm. Uh, we look at the New York Stock Exchange advanced decline line, which indicates the market's breadth. And that has usually topped out several months before uh, the end of the cycle. And now in the recent highs in the Dow and the S&P, the, NAS, uh, the NYSE advanced decline line also rose to a record high. So that to me tell, says that we know we're near the end of this bull market. If you look at the yield curve, if you look at the number of new highs, almost 700 stocks a couple of days ago broke to a new 52-week high and only about 50-odd fell to a 52-week low. So the market's breadth is very strong. Money is cheap and plentiful. The Fed funds rate is near zero. And I think this bull market, which is probably the most hated bull market in history, will continue until the retail investors are back in it. You say it's the most hated, uh, and I hear that a lot. Uh, however, volatility is quite low. Doesn't that tell you that um, you know, maybe investors are a little too positive and a little complacent? Well, I can tell you at a retail level or at the high net worth individual level, uh, business has not been uh, very good for the last several years. Nothing like it used to be before the 2008 uh, era. And uh, that to me says, you know, even though the equity markets have continued to go up, most people over the last four or five years have been waiting for the elusive crash. Every time the market goes down five or 10 percent, everybody comes out and says, this is it. This is the end of the world. And the perma bears come out and they say, well, this is it. It's not going to go on. It can't go on. And usually whenever you have this kind of sentiment in any market, that to me says that the buyers are not all in. Bull markets end when everybody's in and bull markets don't end when nobody's buying. What's your outlook for Hong Kong and China now? Well, China is still looking quite wobbly to me. If you look at the property market, the, the valuations are so absurd in China. If you look at the residential property stock in China, it is almost now 400% of GDP, and it has surpassed that level with Japan, so at the height of its boom. So the bulls might say, well, this time is different. I beg to differ. I think it is never different. Uh, property is a serious problem in China and also in Hong Kong. Uh, I think property prices may fall very sharply here when interest rates go up, not maybe immediately, but when interest rates go up in the U.S., you're going to get a downward adjustment. So I would be very cautious of Chinese assets. You know, speaking of of um, forecasting and economics, uh, it does seem that, um, you know, you have people making such very different stories out of the same sets of data. You just heard Jack Liu say, yeah, growth is coming back. Things are looking better. But then on the other hand, he's saying, you know, unemployment is still far too high and and uh, we, we need stronger growth to, um, you know, to pave the way forward for the United States. You see the schizophrenia between what the stock market seems to be saying, all time highs with bond yields dropping to not quite historical lows, but still very low on a long-term historical basis. Uh, and then with China, you've got people like you who are quite negative, very nervous, and others that say, look, they have such sound management. They have a lot of levers to pull. Guest after guest come on this program and says, uh, look, they, they're shrewd. They have a lot of uh, foreign exchange reserves, and they control everything. So don't worry. Well, Brian, we've heard this story before. We've watched this movie many times in the past 20 or 30 years. People used to say the same about the Japanese, that they are somehow a superior race. Then people started saying the same about America, that things can never go wrong in Europe. Things can never go wrong. I used to come on your show 10 years ago, and everybody used to 
Um, laugh at me when I used to say that America was in deep trouble. And now, you know, if people said the same about Dubai, that this is the new city of the future. And look how that ended. So wherever you have excesses and when things get overstretched, no matter what country it is or how smart the management is, nobody can control the debt. If you have a huge debt bubble like we have in China now and in Hong Kong, by the way, then when interest rates go up, then things get very ugly. And this is just a credit cycle which repeats over and over again in different countries. All right. Stay with us, Peru. We've got some other uh, news that we'd like to um, to bring to our audience. Uh, taxi drivers and train workers have been snarling the roads and rail networks of London, Paris and other European cities. It's a big protest at a new technology a company like Uber. Kyle McKinnon of the AP has more. Those who drive London's black cabs refused to pick up fares and either drove at a snail's pace or stopped in the middle of the road. The result, of course, gridlock on bridges across the Thames River and in Trafalgar Square. The drivers beef mobile phone apps like Uber, which allow passengers to hail a ride from private, often cheaper services. Brussels has banned Uber, but the company apparently timed the release of a London-based app to coincide with the strike action. Meantime, Paris subway workers complained in full voice that some lines are run by semiconductors and not human conductors. On the back of that, Alibaba Group said that it will buy all the remaining shares of mobile browser firm UC Web. It's the biggest merger in China's internet history. The e-commerce giant stepping up its spending spree ahead of its listing in the United States. We're joined now on the line by Frederick Ockfist, founder of China RAI, and we ask Peru to stay with us, too. We'll be uh, chatting a little bit more later in the program, Peru. So, Frederick, good morning to you, and thanks for joining us here on the program. Good morning. Great to be here. Yes. Uh, first, this move on UC Web uh, is this surprising? Is it positive for Alibaba? Uh, well, um, they own sixty-six percent of the company previously, so it's certainly not, let's say, a new investment from them. But they're, um, they're taking their, their investment up to one hundred percent. I mean, I think the UC Web thing looks interesting. UC Web has a very popular web browser for mobile specific. Specifically, and uh, from Alibaba's perspective, one of the more interesting outcomes of this is that they will now have about a reported 500 million quarterly active users on mobile, which of course is more than what Tencent has with uh, the uh, WeChat and Weixin platforms, and they are now at about 400 million monthly active. So it's a big battle between those two, and you've got an interesting um, turning point coming, which is the Alibaba listing. Uh, does this bolster that, uh, or as you say, was it you know something that was part of their panoply of holdings anyway? It was part of the holdings anyways. Um, it might indicate the strategic importance of the place in this. Another thing with UC Web is that they also have a lot of users in India and in Southeast Asia. And if you couple that with the previous um, investment in ThingPost um, that they did earlier, which is uh, Singapore Post, a big logistics company. Uh, so they're looking to develop logistical solutions for Southeast Asia with that. And then you have a lot of mobile users in Southeast Asia through UC Web. So it might you might find a lot of good synergies there. Um, what I will say is that there's been a lot of investment and acquisitions by Alibaba leading up to the IPO, and I, I don't really envy the people trying to prepare the IPO perspectives. I think they're getting a lot more work than they might have uh, signed up for. Why? Um, well, simply keeping up with the Jack Ma and all the um, the acquisitions that they're making. Um, perhaps the most interesting thing that I'm looking forward to is their uh, investment in uh, Evergrande FC. 
the football club in uh, Guangzhou who recently won the uh, Asian Champions League. I want to see how they um, how they discuss that and what they cite as the reason for the purchase. They bought 50% of the company for about 192 million US dollars. Yeah, it does seem odd, um, but there are plenty that are supporting it as well. What do you think the main strategy is there? I mean, the people who are supporting it are saying that it's a switch towards more entertainment and they're providing more, I suppose, entertainment content, etc. Um, however, we've seen, at least in Europe, that it's not necessarily easy to run a large-scale football club at a profit. Um, especially what, what we tend to see more in football clubs is rich owners coming in and spending a lot of money upgrading the team, upgrading the stadium, getting in new star players. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily easy to get that money back. Now, the question is, what type of value does it pertain to Alibaba and exactly how are they going to use it? Um, it'll be interesting. You know, if you talk about overall valuations, do you think that Tencent and Alibaba should be valued more like Amazon or should be or should Amazon be, you know, valued more like them? Uh, Because there's a big difference in what investors are willing to pay in terms of price to earnings. Yeah, um, certainly there is. Um, I think a lot of the um, PE... Let me, let me give you an example. For- Frederick, let me give you an mm. example. Uh, in the last quarter, uh, Amazon had $20 billion of revenue and $500 million of profit. So that's just a tiny little slice. Uh, Tencent had $3 billion of revenues and $1 billion of profit. Uh, the PE of, uh, of Tencent is about 47. The PE of Amazon is about 500. I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, some of that might be legacy valuation where people think that, you know, Amazon was worth this much. You know, you can't adjust it down too fast. Um, it might just be psychological. Um, a lot of the investment in the sort of tech sphere used to be very US-centric. Now I think we're going to see tech investing having two major centers. One is going to be the US tech firms who are still very, very large. They they do have a very strong foothold. But the Asian tech firms, primarily coming from China and I suppose uh, Japan and um, South Korea as well, are going to be sort of a second hub here but that we're seeing, going to see a lot of growth from, I think. Okay. So the question is really, Chinese tech is right now valued at their growth and earnings capacity within China. Yeah. Now, as soon as you break down that boundary and you say, well, these companies could go global as well. And if some of them can show, let's say that Alibaba now starts the Southeast Asian expansion, they do well, they're going to open a U.S. online store as well. Well, then suddenly you have a completely different dynamic. You're not just valuing it on China growth, you're valuing it on global growth. Yeah, excellent point. Uh, So lots of stories to be told, and we'll be watching closely, and we hope to have you back, Frederick. Thank you very much. Uh, Frederick Ockfist is founder of China RAI. Time is 21 minutes after 8 o'clock. So just a moment to catch our breath. We say good morning to Michael Kurtz, head of global equity strategy at Nomura. Hi, Michael. 
Morning, Brian. Yes, a uh, little trouble getting you, and sorry to make you wait for just a bit there, but uh, always good to have you on the program and to get your, um, you know, sort of big brainiac look at what's happening in the world. I can't make any sense of it. I don't know if you heard earlier about these um, varying strategies that people seem to be playing out, but I guess, uh, you know, that's what makes a market. Are you positive or are you negative on what's happening in the global economy? I think overall still pretty positive here. If I can, you know, sort of default back to the global economic recovery as the principal driver here for the equity opportunity set, it looks to us like um, the second quarter has seen a substantial reestablishment of, a, of a, a U.S. recovery that's under pretty firm momentum and strong enough indeed to uh, help carry the European economy, which clearly is the shakier one, um, into a bit more of a firm recovery itself. While out here in Asia, China at least seems to have finally cobbled together, let's say, a critical minimum mass of easing, uh, albeit there's no one measure that has really been, you know, sort of uh, decisive. There's lots of little easing measures that add up to China now having put a s- sort of substantial backstop beneath any downside risks to the economy. What, what so are some of those, I, I, you know, before we get to the big macro story, the global look uh, just on China, since you referen- or referred to it, um, what are some of the little steps that you like? Well, you know, for example, these um, targeted reserve requirement cuts that have been announced look pretty smart in the sense that it's not just a blanket dumping of credit into the economy a la some of the uh, previous Chinese cyclical easings that we've seen since the global financial crisis, but, for example, are being applied specifically to banks uh, that are putting more of the uh, marginal credit to use in the real economy, lending to real businesses, small and medium enterprises, and so on, and therefore are acting as an incentive for Chinese banks uh, to engage in smarter uh, credit allocation and, and not just supporting the, you know, as we know, largely now uh, unworkable business model where, you know, China is putting a lot of money into uh, infrastructure projects at the local government level that may be of marginal real value to the economy. My, my so, other guest uh, earlier this morning, Peru Sexena, believes that China is kind of like in the same sort of position that the U.S. was maybe eight or nine years ago, uh, pointing toward big trouble and that um, a major... Uh, implosion has to happen to get back on track, but you're in the other camp. Well, I'm at least in the camp that says that uh, they can get there from here. It's not impossible for China at this stage to reform uh, the structure of their economy without an implosion. Now, it's going to be a difficult exercise, but I actually think that Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang are playing it pretty smart in uh, the past couple of months, in as much as they are trying to, as I say, provide a bit of a, a downside uh, buffer against a uh, slowdown, but are clearly avoiding the temptation that their predecessors gave into many times to simply, uh, you know, sort of kitchen sink the easing process by dumping 20 or 30 percent of GDP worth of credit into the economy uh, and funding any number of projects that are probably of limited real utility for the longer term. So they're easing, but they're also being very mindful that you have to put the Chinese economy through some pain. You have to, unfortunately, be willing to bear a slowdown if the structural reform is going to remain intact. And I, I, I give them credit for not giving into the temptation to just hit all of the panic buttons simultaneously and generate a lot of growth that turns out in the longer term to simply be 
uh, you know, wasteful of, of capital. So, so I think kudos to them. Peru, you don't see the prudent management that Michael sees? Well, we tried to bring up uh, Peru's mic in uh, in our satellite studio. He's in Admiralty. I'm up here at uh, at the mothership of RTHK, as I like to refer to it, in the bowels of RTHK Broadcasting <laughs> House, the center. Uh, Peru, you don't uh, you don't agree with Michael? Well, I think they're trying their best to uh, do whatever they can to control the damage, but they know as well as I do that the debt is simply too much. If you look at the credit buildup in China over the last few years, it is mind-boggling. You look at Hong Kong, uh, Brian, in the last. Uh, four or five years now since the Fed unleashed QE, mortgage debt in this city has appreciated by 60%, 60% at near zero interest rates. The Chinese credit situation is even worse than Hong Kong. Their debt is just off the charts. They're unfortunately building these apartments. But you don't have the same leverage. You know, every situation is different. Look at Japan, 220% of GDP in terms of debt, and it's never imploded. Well, the Japanese had a massive collapse in 1989, 1990 <laughs> okay. when their uh, property stock was as 350 or 60% of GDP. Chinese residential real estate is valued at 400% of GDP. Yeah. Michael? Well, there's a unique situation here. The, the Chinese household saver has had a preference for hard assets, partly because, of course, of the, the distortions in the Chinese financial system. Uh, household savings interest rates in the banking system are so low that, that savers prefer the tangibility of property. I'm not here to defend that system. There are irrationalities involved. But it, to, to make comparisons to other countries' financial market bubbles um, isn't appropriate unless those financial markets operate under the same principles as the Chinese system. This is a state-owned banking system. It's an essentially captive domestic savings audience because capital controls make it very difficult to move national savings abroad. And therefore, uh, you're not going to see the kind of uh, runs on the bank uh, or, uh, or substantial panics that you would get in a more uh, open, free, and, and privately owned banking system. Okay. Peru, thank you very much for joining us. We don't have time for a debate on this at the moment. Just a few more ideas from Michael before we go. Uh, Michael, we did see uh, quite a big sell-off in terms of uh, um, riskier assets earlier this year. Um, where are you now on emerging markets on the one hand and also um, tech and biotech and some of these high flyers on the other hand? Yeah, so I, I do think that, uh, as, as we were publishing at the time, that the sell-off in the new growth names, biotech, internet content, electric vehicles, um, uh, does not set us up for a, a rebound back to the previous valuation metrics. We, we do think that those sectors uh, looked a little frothy, and they needed to sell off or correct back to multiples that are more uh, sort of in, in tune with their actual earnings growth prospects. That said, we also don't see enough evidence that the sell-off was some kind of a canary in the coal mine for, uh, for the broader global growth outlook. For example, you didn't see any uh, widening of high-yield credit spreads versus investment grade at the same time, which you would have expected to have seen were, were this a real uh, you know, problem for the growth outlook. Nor, for example, have you seen peripheral European sovereign credit spreads widening either. And those spreads should be very sensitive to the growth outlook. And just a quick so, word on, on EM? Well, EMs, um, you know, they, they have outperformed at the same time, which again suggests to us that risk-taking is alive and well. But I think investors need to be very discriminating with respect to emerging market exposure. The growth will be there for the asset class, but we are concerned that, uh, number one, treasury yields are going to continue to creep higher on a multi-month basis. And that will create some pain for the higher yielding 
current account deficit emerging market, the likes of, say, Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa. Uh, and, and on top of that, with China slowing down, as I say, um, then this is still going to be a somewhat more difficult environment for the upstream extractive resource-intense markets. And that keeps us, again, much more discriminating in, in terms of wanting to be in downstream manufacturing-intense emerging markets, the likes of, say, Taiwan or Korea, but, but still uh, looking to be picky and choosy and avoid the upstream plays and, and the resource-intense plays. Okay, Michael, got to go. Out of time. Thank you very much. Michael Kurtz, head of global equity strategy at Nomira. Before that, Peru Sagzena of uh, Peru Sagzena Wealth Management. We also spoke to Frederick Onkvist, China, the founder of China RAI. Well, in uh, Europe overnight, markets were slightly lowered, but not by a lot, down about five-tenths to seven-tenths of a percent. And here in Asia this morning, as we advance to the first half hour of trading for the Nikkei, it's down 120 at 14,948, and the other markets are just a little bit in the red as well. So let's take a look at the weather for the day today as we wrap up today's show. And here's what it looks like. Mainly cloudy skies, one or two showers at first. Sunny periods uh, a bit later in the day. And the maximum temperature likely to be 30 degrees. Moderate to fresh easterly wind. So what happens tomorrow? Well, sunshine expected, but still some showers in the next few days. The news coming up next and after that, back chat on Radio 3. Day 31, the news with Ben Jeb. The Legislative Council's legal sector representative, Dennis Kwok, has accused Beijing of trying to rewrite Hong Kong's mini-constitution in its unprecedented white paper outlining its jurisdiction over the city. He made the comments as he welcomed the Bar Association's 